Welcome to the 12th episode of Ukraine War Uncovered, podcast about the war in Ukraine. Today is 526 days of the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine and the day of recording the last episode of the first season of the Ukraine War Uncovered podcast. My name is Pavlo, my colleague is Anna. We are Ukrainians and co-hosts of this podcast. In this podcast, we will uncover facts and stories about the war in Ukraine, some of which you may not hear from the mainstream media. We will provide you with key weekly updates about the war, based on information from the ground, connect with eyewitnesses and experts directly from Ukraine, and share stories of wartime life inside Ukraine and stories of temporary displaced people. We will also uncover Ukraine, its language, culture and history for you. In this episode, we will unpack what grain deal is and what results it yielded for the year of its operation. Then we will move to the reasons why Russia terminated it a few weeks ago and what are the alternatives for Ukrainian exporters. Let's go. So let's start from the topic of the week. What's a Black Sea Grain Deal? Official name Black Sea Grain Initiative. The agreement signed by Ukraine Infrastructure Minister Alexander Kurbakov and Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu in July 2022 at Istanbul Lavish Dolmabas Palace created a safe corridor for Ukraine's grain exports from three Ukrainian ports Odessa, Yuzhny, and Chernomorsk. Under the agreement, a coalition of Turkish, Ukrainian, and the UN staff monitored the loading of grain into vessels in Ukrainian ports before navigating a pre-planned route through Black Sea, which is heavily mined by Ukrainian and Russian forces. Ukrainian pilot vessel guided commercial vessels transporting the grain in order to navigate the mined areas around the coastline using a map of state-safe channels provided by the Ukrainian side. The vessel then crossed the Black Sea over Turkey Bosphorus Strait while being closely monitored by a joint coordination center in Istanbul containing representatives from UN, Ukraine, Russia and Turkey. Ships entering Ukraine were inspected under the supervision of the same Joint Coordination Center to ensure they were not carrying weapons. Traditionally, we add some key stats to show how the grain deal has been working so far. As of July 2023, almost 33 million tons of grains and other foodstuff had been exported via Black Sea Grain Initiative. Over 50% of the cargo was maize the grain most affected by the blockage in Ukrainian granaries at the beginning of the war. It had to be moved quickly to make space for wheat from the summer harvest. Wheat made up to 27 of grain exports within the grain deal, sunflower products 11% and other food products 10%. Prices for wheat, the main ingredient in brand, have fallen about 17% so far this year, while corn is down about 26%. Ukrainian grain played a direct role in easing a global food crisis, with 725,000 tons or 2.2% of the supply ships through the corridor used by the United Nations World Food Program as aid to countries such as Ethiopia, Somalia and Yemen. As to the destination of the shipping, we can observe the following. Russia in their propaganda alleges that grain from the grain deal benefits only West and does not reach the countries in need. However, Russian propaganda statements are false accusations. This is because, according to data of Black Sea Grain Initiative Joint Coordination Center, which includes representatives from Russia, Turkey, Ukraine and the United Nations, 65% of wheat exported through Black Sea Grain Initiative reached developing countries. 
maize was exported almost equally to developed and developing countries, with 51% exported to developing countries and 49% to developed. The International Rescue Committee calls the Grain Deal lifeline for 79 countries and 349 million people on the front line of food insecurity. Then, in July 2023, Russia terminated the Grain Deal. Why? Officially, Russia's objections were that the grain was not reaching the poorest countries, though the destinations for the exports had never been part of the deal. The Kremlin's real priority was to remove barriers to the export of Russian grain and fertilizers. Yet, despite the EU and United States introducing sanctions exemptions for Russian agriculture exporters, Western companies have proved reluctant to return to business as usual with their Russian counterparts. Despite this obstacle, Russia still managed to supply 60 million tons of grain to foreign markets this agricultural year, July 2022, June 2023, and earn over $41 billion from doing so. Putin previously promised that if the grain deal fell through, Moscow would supply grain free of charge to African countries in need of it. Most likely, he was referring to the volumes that Africa receives under the UN food program, about 1 million of tons. Given the record harvest and export, that is a small amount for Russia. Russia's foreign ministry also listed other demands to renew the grain deal, reconnect the state-owned Russia Agricultural Bank to international SWIFT messaging service that is critical for cross-border payments. Also, they demanded lift restriction on maritime insurance and on the supply of spare parts using agricultural machinery. The next demand was end sanctions against fertilizer companies and the people linked to them, and restore an ammonia pipeline that crosses Ukraine. It is believed that one of the supporting reasons for the deal termination was a strike on the Crimean bridge overnight before the termination. Russia and the US claim that these two events are not linked, Despite this, Russia launched massive missile attack on Odessa region ports, destroying many millions of tons of grain and maize, driving their prices up on global markets. So what are the alternatives for Ukraine now? Ukraine has been exporting substantial volumes of grain through the Eastern European Union countries since the conflict began. There are, have been, however, many logistical challenges, including different rail gauges. Another issue is that the flow of Ukrainian grain through the eastern EU has caused unrest among farmers in the region who say it has undercut local supplies and began being purchased by mills, leaving them without market for their crops. As a result, the EU has allowed five countries – Bulgaria, Hungary, Poland, Romania and Slovakia – to ban domestic sales of Ukrainian wheat, corn, rapeseed and sulfur seed, while allowing transit for export elsewhere. As it stands, this will be phased out by mid-September. Largest harvests are also expected in the eastern EU this summer, and key ports such as Constanza in Romania are expected to struggle to handle the volume of grain they are likely to receive, leading to congestions and shipping delays. As to the most recent developments of the grain deal situation, on the 18th of July, Korir Singwe, the top civil servant in Kenya's foreign affairs ministry, said in a tweet, the decision by Russia to exit the Black Sea Grain Initiative is a step on the back at global food security prices and disproportionately impacts countries in the Horn of Africa, already impacted by drought. 
On the 29th of July, Egypt's president urged Vladimir Putin to renew the deal allowing Ukraine to export grain at a summit the Russian president was hosting. Abdel Fattah Sisi said it was essential the deal be revived and called for an urgent solution to supply the poorest African countries. On the 31st of July, Dmitry Kuleba, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, announced that Ukraine and Croatia agreed on the use of Croatian ports for the export of Ukrainian grain. On the 31st of July, a trio of civilian cargo ships, one each from Israel and Greece plus one with Turkish-Georgian registration, ran, ra ran the Russian blockade in the Black Sea on Sunday and anchored at one of Ukraine's grain ports on the Danube Delta. Overhead, no fewer than four NATO warplanes patrolled. Reports of three civilian ships sailing to Ukraine unhindered may suggest that Russia is either unwilling or unable to enforce such searches at this time, the Institute for Study of War in Washington, D.C. noted. On the 2nd of August, the Anadolu English reported that the long-term suspension of Black Sea grain deal doesn't benefit anyone, Turkish President Erdogan tells Russian leader on phone. They also agree on Putin's visit to Turkey. So, speaking to the topic relevant to grain deal, in the previous episode of the podcast, when we were speaking about the reported attacks on the Odessa, Odessa region and the port infrastructure, one of the reasons we discussed why Russia doing these attacks on Odessa region and the port infrastructure of Ukraine, it was that Russia wants to interrupt grain deal and also wants to disrupt Ukrainian port and grain infrastructure in order to prevent Ukraine exporting grains either through the Black Sea or through the other corridors. Anna, you spent last week uh, in Ukraine, in Odessa. So let's speak about like how Odessa and Odessa people feeling after these attacks that happened and we covered in the previous episode of the podcast. But before that, I probably want to take a step back. Could you tell us, please, how your journey from Ireland to Ukraine looked like? What means of transport you use? How long did it take you to travel from Ireland to Ukraine? And how it's compared to the previous travels before the war times? So actually, it's hard to believe that a huge country in the center of Europe now closed. So the sky is closed, so there are no direct flights. So to go to Ukraine, you have to take a plane to a bordered country. In my case, it was Moldova because, as you know, both of us, we are from Odessa and I wanted to go to support my friends and family after all these attacks. So I took a plane from Dublin to Chisinau in Moldova. It takes, I think, around four hours and they, then it's very easy to get to Ukraine, to Odessa by car. It takes around three, another three hours, but sometimes you have to stand on the border like for different checks and so on and it can take another one two hours but i was lucky so it was very straightforward but if you don't have a car are you still able to travel like from yes Kishinau sure there are Ukraine? there are a lot of buses so it's like very easy i think 10 buses during the day are there trains available no i believe no trains from moldova but as you know our ukrazaliznitsia are real heroes so there are trains from poland okay so if someone travels not 
for example, to Moldova to Chisinau, they can travel to Poland or Romania and get from there. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay, so th that's clear now. Let's refresh our audience recollection. So in probably July this year, 2023, there was a month uh, since the start of the full-scale invasion with the like, heaviest attacks uh, on Odessa and Odessa region there during one month, I would say, and probably nights from 17th to 19th July, if I'm not mistaken, were scariest with the attack on historic center, with the cathedral, museums affected. So you were from what date in Odessa? From the 25th of July. So it's about probably a week, less than a week uh, past in the like severe attacks. How the Odessa and Odessa's people feels? What the atmosphere there in the city? Oh, it was very heartbreaking to see all these attacks because they happened in the city center, in the historical city center that is under protection of UNESCO. What I saw when I just came into my city from the window of the car, people are very stressed. Like you can see it. Usually Odessa people are like smiling, chatting, they're not in a hurry. But this time there were less smiles on the face and it was very hard to see. Then from the conversations I heard that now there's a huge problem that people are afraid to go to sleep because all that huge attacks happens during the night, the night time at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And the whole city was shaking, so Russians launched all the missiles type that they had. And of course, our air defenses did their best, but they couldn't like reach all the missiles. So the city was shaking and people were afraid that all the buildings, you know, will just go down. So yeah, people are stressed, but still they're trying to be positive. All businesses are still working. People even opening like new businesses, new places. But now when you go to a pharmacy, it's very hard to buy medicines for mental health or medicines which calm you down because people are buying them as much as they can and they can to have this opportunity to sleep not to panic during nighttime even when it's not loud loud even when it's calm people still have this feeling that something can happen again and so that was uh, since the full-scale invasion that was your second visit to ukraine you've been in odessa and Kyiv in November last year. Also when you were in Odessa, there were like 100 missiles launched by Russians over Ukrainian territory. So how this visit felt different from the previous one? Is it the same or you see some differences between the, between almost six months between your visits? People, people are still very brave. So people are not going to leave the city or leave the country. People are still ready to fight. People, even after such huge, huge attacks, they are not ready to be a part of Russia, of the Russian world. They're ready to fight till the end and to protect the city. Another thing that after those attacks, of course, there was a lot of mess on the streets. And after what happened with Kachovska, Kachovska Dam, all those like water and damage went on our beaches. And I was ready that I will come to my city and I will help to clean it as a volunteer. But people are so organized. I'm in love with Odessa people, not only because I'm from Odessa, but because of it as well. So people cleaned everything. Mun municipalities, of course, they took like their part, but I believe that 90% were done with the hands of people of Odessa. They're just united. 
cleans all the streets, cleans all the beaches. So the city was clean just in five, seven days. And it was, it was so special. So you've probably seen destructive buildings, but you haven't seen any like rubbish or rubble. I saw, of course, I saw like destroyed buildings. I saw buildings with no windows, but no rubbish outside. Like everything is so clean. Wow, wow. that's impressive. And in terms of going out of Ukraine, is it like same as uh, entering Ukraine? Are there like any difficulties on your way back? So the way is quite the same, but there are different times when the border is closed. So unfortunately, on my way back to Moldova, like the border from the Ukrainian side was closed because like one team like left and another was coming. So we spent like two hours just waiting when everything will will be opened again. And when we entered Moldova, actually we heard all these sirens from Ukraine. And I had a chat with people in Moldova and they say that they hear all the sirens as well and they are following the news because like, they want to make sure that no missiles are coming to Moldova. But I was surprised actually that even in Moldova the sirens are so loud and they are not in Moldova, they are from the Ukrainian side. Thank, thank you for that. We will speak a bit more about Moldova and where it's located in the Ukrainian geography and Ukrainian history with Moldova a bit further in this episode. And now let's move to the next topic. So now let's move to the updates from the front lines. On 25th of July, near Staromayorsky in Donetsk region, the Ukrainian defense forces have advanced to a distance of up to 750 meters, United Press Center of Tavria region reports. On 26th of July, General Staff Center reported that the Ukrainian defense forces are successful in the Staromayorsk area are entrenched on the capture lines. On July 27, Ukraine recaptured Staromayorsky village in the southeast, Zelensky says in his address. On July 29th, Hanna Mahler reported that on the, that day, Ukrainian troops gradually but confidently advanced in the direction of the Berdyansk and Melitopol. Intense fighting continued in all directions of the offensive. On August 7, Ukrainian defenders knocked out the enemy from the position south of Avdiivka, which is the Bakhmut district of the General Staff Center. Also, defense forces continue to conduct an offensive operation in Melitopol and Berdyansk direction, securing themselves at their achieved boundaries. The most recent maps for the Institute of Study of War show the following. In the Bakhmut direction, Ukrainian forces forced continue counteroffensive operations on at least three sectors of the front and reportedly advanced near Bakhmut on August 1st. Ukrainian officials reported that Ukrainian forces continued gradually advancing near Bakhmut, and a Russian source claimed that Ukrainian forces captured an unspecified height south of Bakhmut near Klishivka. Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Mahler reported on August 1st that in the past week Ukrainian forces captured two square kilometers of the territory in the Bakhmut direction and 12 square kilometers in the southern Ukraine. Reported Ukrainian partisan warfare seen in several areas of the territories occupied by Russia, including Severodonetsk, Lugansk and Donetsk areas. As to the what maps report in the Zaporizhia direction, 
Ukrainian forces continued offensive operation in western Zaporizhia Oblast region and did not make confirmed advances as of August 1st. Russian forces also conducted offensive operation in western Zaporizhia region and did not make confirmed advances as well on the August 1st. Other what we can see from the map that Ukrainian general staff reported that Ukrainian forces continued offensive operation in the Melitopol, western Zaporizhia region direction. Russian sources claim that Ukrainian forces conducted unsuccessful attacks against Russian forces along the Donetsk-Zaporizhia region border area near Staromayorsky and Urozhaina in western Zaporizhia Oblast near Robotina. The UK Ministry of Defense uh, reported that the Russian 58th Combined Arms Army, Southern Military District, of Russian army in western Zaporizhia region likely struggles with the severe fatigue and that elements of the 5th Combined Army Arms Army Eastern Military District of Russian Armed Forces South of Velika Novosilivka likely face a high level of pressure to defend the area and feel that the Russian military command should rotate them from the front line. Also, the UK Ministry of Defense reported that the Russian commanders in southern Ukraine largely struggle with artillery ammunition shortages, a lack of reserves and challenges with securing the flanks of the defending units. Now let's move to weekly news update. On the 25th of July, Zelensky commented on the results of investigations into the work of military conscription centers. Today I was presented with some preliminary results of the inspection of other military committees, except the former Odessa one, and disappointing results. Of course, law enforcement officers will implement them in a legal way, and society will see everything. On the 26th of July, Moldova is decreasing the number of Russian diplomats due to the increased evidence of them spying over the Moldovan government. Washington Post reported that Ukrainians have created a technology that, with the help of AI, brings striking drones even to moving targets when the drone loses contact due to the effect of anti-drone systems. On the 27th of July, the leader of the Ukrainian national fencing team, Olga Harlan, was disqualified from the World Championships after she refused to greet the so-called neutral athlete from Russia, Anna Smirnova, after her victory over Smirnova with a score of 15-7. After the fight was over, Harlan refused to shake Smirnova's hand, offering to bump with a weapon. Not receiving an answer from the Russian, the Ukrainian fencer left the limits on, of the track. Smirnova, on the other hand, remained on the track, protesting against the Ukrainian actions and demanding her disqualification under clause 4.6 of the FIE regulations, because Ukrainian athlete refused to salute her at the end of the fight. As a result, the Russian woman sat on the chair for some time, waiting for a decision from the World Championships organizers. After 52 minutes had passed since the fight started, an official of the tournament approached Smirnova. After exchanging remarks, the fencer stayed on the track for a few more minutes, after which she left it and the names of the other participants appeared on the scoreboard. 
What happened? The Russian woman tried to protest Harlan's actions, referring to the Ukrainian athlete's refusal of greeting salute, which according to the rules of the International Fencing Federation is punishable by a black card, disqualification from the tournament. Despite this, at first, it was Harlan who made it to the next round in the live scoreboard and was supposed to meet the representative of Bulgaria, Iona Ilieva. However, the World Championships organizers sided with Smirnova, the fight between Harlan and Ilieva didn't take place in the end. The female fencers didn't even go on the track. And in the live scoreboard, it was noted that it was the Bulgarian athlete who passed to the round. In the protocol of the competition against Olga Harlan, it is stated excluded. According to Suspilna Sports, a source who was at the World Cup, Harlan was withdrawn from the World Cup. There is only one interpretation of being excluded in the FIE rules. It means disqualification from the competition and a 60-day suspension from all further competitions. This means that the Ukrainian fencer must also miss the team fencing tournament, where there are no supposed to be neutral representatives from Russia and Belarus. This situation drew large media attention and disappointment of the World Championships organizers and the World Fencing Federation actions. This situation once again showed that it's unbelievable that Ukrainian athletes have to shake hands with athletes from the aggressor state. Though Russian and Belarusian athletes participate under so-called neutral flag, are they are really neutral? Example of Smirnova, who posts on social media pictures in support of Russian army, shows that they are not as neutral as claimed to be, and Smirnova not the only one. Still, it was the Ukrainian athlete Harlan who won the fight with Russian Smirnova, but was disqualified because she didn't shake hands with Smirnova. Save for public outrage, it raises lots of questions about ethics and fairness. Two days later, the International Olympic Committee qualified fencer Olga Harland for the 2024 Olympics, Minister of Youth and Sport Hutsait. Then, the World Fencing Federation decided that it will change the handshake rules, which will allow Ukrainians not to approach Russians. The traditional handshake at the end of the match will be replaced by a remote greeting. It is not the first time Ukrainian athletes are under pressure. For our YouTube viewers, we will add an insightful video by Ukraine-UA on this topic. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Accept responsibility for your mistakes. Show respect for the rules. The concept of fair play in sports is derived from basic life principles. Russia shows no fairness, neither in sports nor in life. Some booed Ukrainian athletes because they don't shake hands with people who support Russia's war against Ukraine or choose comfortable silence. They say, it is not fair play. We ask, is this whole reality we live in fair at all? Is it really fair that Ukrainian athletes sacrifice their lives to defend Ukraine with arms, while Russian athletes join their terrorist army to start a cruel war? Is it really fair that Ukrainian athletes witness their homes ruined, stadiums bombed, sports facilities razed to the ground, while thousands of Russian athletes join the biggest sports club in the country, which is a department of the Russian Defense Ministry? Is it really fair of Russian and Belarus athletes to expect respectful gestures and treatment? While all these years they kept sponsoring the terrorist state with their taxes, hugging dictators and staying silent about Russian war crimes? There is nothing fair about Russia torturing, raping, deporting innocent Ukrainian civilians. 
There is nothing fair about Russia deliberately targeting homes, schools, hospitals, museums, and churches. There is nothing fair about Russia carelessly playing with global security, fueling state-sponsored doping system, and using sports to whitewash its crimes. Russia wants the victory at all costs, but we don't play their games. We know the rules, and we win following them. Intervene here on a wider issue of the participation of Russian athletes in sports, including upcoming Olympic Games, Bjorn Birch from the Council of Europe raised the important issue of integrity in sport. A number of Russian and Belarusian athletes belong to the military or may be supported, including financially by others who are subject to sanctions. While this may be hard to prove right now, their integrity is at very least called into a question. Supporting this, Dmitro Kuleba, Minister for Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, tweeted Russia won 71 medals in Tokyo Olympics. 45 of them were won by the athletes who are also members of the central sports clubs of the Russian army. The army that commits atrocities, kills, rapes and loots. This is a whom the ignorant International Olympic Committee wants to put under the white flag allowing to compete. This begs another question. Does allowing Russian athletes to compete under neutral or white flag change anything? Supporters of this idea say that sports is neutral, it's out of politics, and that Russian and Belarusian athletes are just victims of the regime. But let's be honest, sport is not neutral. And there is enough politics in sport, not always open one. The recent Harlan Smirnova situation in the World Fencing Championship shows that the neutral flag changes nothing. Even if Russian athletes pretend to be neutral at competition, are they neutral behind the competition? They are still citizens of the aggressor state. The neutral flag does not change the fact that they are associated with aggressor state during the competition. They have large audience watching them at the competition and a large audience following them on social media during and after the competition. And this association helps them translate the Russian propaganda narratives in support of Russian aggression against Ukraine. In another example, Russian Olympic athletes took a part in rally in support of Vladimir Putin and the invasion of Ukraine at Moscow Luzhinsky Stadium in March 2022, an event dedicated to the anniversary of Russia's annexation of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Most of these athletes were photographed at the rally wearing jackets with a Z on the chest. The letter isn't part of the Russian alphabet, but has become a symbol of support for Russian troops after it used as a marker on Russian armored vehicles operating aggressive war in Ukraine. Olympic medalists attended this event, including swimming champion Yevgeny Rylov, figure skaters Victoria Senitsina, Nikita Katsalapov, Yegenia Tarasova, and Vladimir Morozov, cross-country skiers Alexander Polshunov and rhythmic gymnast twin sister Diana and Arina Averina. Another example is gymnast Ivan Kulak, who is wearing that symbol on the podium next to Ukrainian competitor. After winning bronze medal in the parallel bars final at the World Apparatus Championship in Doha, Kulak pinned the letter Z to the front of his uniform before standing next to the gold medalist Ilya Kovtun of Ukraine for the national anthems. And there are many other examples of Russian athletes publicly or on social media supporting Russian aggression and the Russian army. It could be argued 
that refusal of Ukrainian athlete Harlan to shake hands with Russian athlete at the World Championship was also a political gesture. Perhaps, but there is a difference between Ukrainian and Russian-Belarusian athletes in this context. Should Ukrainian athletes be punished for not shaking hands with the representatives of the aggressor state at competition? Should they be put in situation where they have to compromise their conscience and ethics? It's not fair equation towards Ukrainian athletes in this situation. While some Ukrainian athletes are unable to train because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine or some other face constant training interruption due to Russian shelling and attacks on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure and destruction of sports facilities, and some even die defending Ukraine like Ukrainian athlete Volodymyr Andrushchuk, who died uh, defending Ukraine against Russian invasion near Bakhmut. Uh, as was announced this January. Meanwhile, Russian and Belarusian athletes can live their lives without constant trends of rockets, attacks and shelling, with free access to sport facilities, government-funded or oligarch-funded sport programs, those governments that also start aggressive wars against other countries. Despite the, this, the International Olympic Committee and the International Sports Federation allow Russian and Belarusian athletes to take part in competition where they continue to broadcast message of support for their government's aggression. This has been very emotional, but at very least it is unfair to Ukrainians, athletes, and this situation must be changed. Coming back to the news updates, on the 28th of July, events show once again why Ukrainian athletes have a legitimate reason to protest Russian athletes' participation in sports. A new sociological study was issued by Opora Center regarding the responsibility of the Russians for the war. The absolute majority of Ukrainians, 78%, consider all Russians responsible for the aggression. 57 want to see punished everyone who had a direct relation to the planning, approval, organization, and commission of war crimes. Russians launched a massive missile attack on Dnipro, destroying a few residential buildings, injuring 10 people, including two children. Exactly a year ago, Russians made a terrorism act in Alenivka prison, a building housing Ukrainian prisoners of war in a Russian-operated prison in Donetsk region. It was destroyed with direct missile strikes, killing 53 Ukrainian prisoners of war and leaving 75 wounded. The prisoners were mainly soldiers from the Azov-style complex, the last Ukrainian stronghold in the siege of Mariupol. On the 30th of July, the Ukrainian fencing team reached the semi-finals of the World Championship, defeating the USA team with a score of 45-44. The winning shot was made by Olga Harlan. Nevertheless, then Ukrainian athletes lost in semi-finals against the French team. On the 31st of July, Russians launched another massive missile attack on Krivy Rig and destroyed a residential block of flats, destroying floors 4 to 9 as well as a local school. 75 people were injured, including 5 children, as well as 6 people were killed, including a 10-year-old child, according to the Office of the General Attorney of Ukraine. From January to July 2023, 28% fewer babies were born in Ukraine than in the same period of 2021. This is the biggest decline since independence of Ukraine in 1991. In Ukraine, developed a kamikaze drone of the operational and strategic level Rubak, which is capable of flying at a distance of 500 kilometers. 
They are already used in combat operations, said a representative of one of the special units of the GUR. According to a new investigation, at least 81 businessmen from the last pre-war ranking of the 200 richest Russians openly financed the Russian army. Currently, 80 of these oligarchs are under sanctions, but only 14 of them have come under restrictions in all of Ukraine's allied countries. Another 34 only in Ukraine. On the 2nd of August, Miami police handed over 101 units of confiscated firearms to Ukraine. An unknown donor added 148,000 bullets to it. The program of the school subject Defense of Ukraine will be updated, writes Minister of Education Aksen Lisovy. Students will be taught high-quality first aid, mind safety, drone control and terrain orientation. Times dictates the lessons. Now let's move the, to the week in the history of Ukraine. August 2nd, 1940. Areas known as Bessarabia, Odessa area and North Bukovina, Chernivtsi left Romania and joined Ukraine. After the German-Soviet non-aggression pact was signed in August 23rd, 1939, the Soviet demanded on June 26, 1940, that Romania cede Bessarabia and northern portion of Bukovina. The Romanian government complied. Soviet troops entered the region on June 28. In August 1940, Moldova or the Moldovian Soviet Socialist Republic was created out of the central district of Bessarabia and a strip of Ukrainian territory on the other side of the Dniester River. Kishinev, now Kishinev became Moldova's capital. The northern region of Bessarabia, Hotin, and the coastal plain from the Danube to the Dniester were incorporated into Ukraine or the Ukrainian SSR. During World War II, Romanians occupied Bessarabia and temporarily reorganized it as a part of Romania. The Soviet Union seized it in 1944 and the territorial arrangements of 1930 were re-established. Bessarabia remained divided after Ukraine and Moldova, Moldavia, now Moldova, declared independence in 1991. Now let's move to word of the week. Ukraine, Ukraina. In the last episode of the first season, we decided to dive a little bit in the etymology of the word Ukraine, the name of the country we mentioned on multiple occasions here. Ukraina was initially mentioned in the Hypatian Codex in approximately 1187, referring to the name of the territory of the Principality of Pereyaslavl. The Codex was written in the East Slavic version of Church Slavonic language. Since then, and almost until the 18th century, in written sources this word was used in the meaning of borderlands, without reference to any particular region with clear borders, including far beyond the territory of modern Ukraine. The Ukraine issue. By the 18th century, the French introduced Lukhen and the article stuck. The usage of the Ukraine then became most popular when it was a territorial entity of both the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. But why does the article matter? Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the Ukrainian government declared in its constitution that it would henceforth be referred to as Ukraine, thus dropping the article. 
There were two justifications for this. First, in Russian and Ukrainian, the two most popularly spoken languages in Ukraine, articles do not exist, hence it seems foolish to incorporate the article. Second, with the establishment of its independence, the Ukraine became a demeaning term as it implied that Ukraine remained territorial region of one of its former rulers. Thus, it is correct use Ukraine without Article D. Simply say Ukraine or Ukraina. That's it for today. Please don't forget to like and comment on this episode of the podcast. We would also appreciate it if you subscribe to our channels and share the link to this podcast episode with your friends. Thank you for being with us today and all across all 12 episodes of our podcast. There is more to be done and more episodes to be recorded. Stand tuned, take care, we will see you soon. And actually, hear you soon. Glory to Ukraine. Glory to heroes.